not everyone has amazing days every day of the week and you could wake up and for no reason at all you could just wake up and, and not be having a good day it just it, it happens to everyone but blue peter allows me that sort of escapism and if i do wake up and i'm not having a great day then and if i do take it i try not to take it into work with me but sometimes you just can't help it or something you know if stuff's going on in your personal life or whatever it happens then i do get that sense of escapism by donning this mask every thursday live 5 p.m and it, it is great it is helpful and i do love losing myself in live television so yeah as you say it is it is Oh, it's not quite being a character, but it does allow some sort of escapism. Talking about rhino poo. Hello and welcome to Underestimated, the podcast where we unpick and unpack a moment in our lives where we have felt underestimated and ask if ultimately being underestimated has helped or hindered our success. Each episode, I sit down with a trailblazing guest who sticks their middle finger up to the status quo. I'm your host, current presenter, lifelong feminist and ex-model, Jess Davis, and I've been underestimated my whole life, but maybe I like it that way. My guest this episode is Richie Driss, the 38th presenter of the legendary children's TV programme, Blue Peter. Richie and I have known each other for over 10 years and it's been so amazing to follow his journey from working in a little independent clothes shop in Aberystwyth, stocking the shelves, to interviewing A-list celebrities and fronting one of the most iconic British TV shows ever. In this episode, Richie and I discuss the dreaded imposter syndrome, grinding away at the hustle, the Blue Peter audition process, and sharing jokes with Kevin Hart. Kind of a big deal. Plus how Rhino Poo is the perfect escapism from everyday life. I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Underestimated. Richie Driss, welcome to Underestimated. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining me. Or should I call you number 38 as every single news article? That, that's what they do, these news articles. I will be forever Blue Peter presenter number 38. Very exciting times. And you've been really busy recently taking on some ridiculous challenge for children in need. Talk to me a bit about that. What exactly did it entail? I've seen some of the pictures online, but it seems awful. Yeah, well, it was it was for Blue Peter primarily, as opposed to ch- for children in need. But it's setting the example that, you know, if you are going to raise money for children in need, by any means, then it's an incredible thing to do. And if you're going to do something, quite frankly, ridiculous that you've never tried before, then more power to you. And that basically must, my way of trying to set an example to the kids that watch and and the challenge was to attempt to climb the old manifoy which i'm assuming you don't know what that is uh, i'm very clued up on my mountains but i hear it's not a real mountain so i don't exactly not, know no. what it is yeah true it's not a mountain we're gonna split hairs <laughs> it's not a mountain it is it's this thing called a sea stack you've done this horrible mm-hmm. just sleeping on the side of a rock situation and this is kind of just your day-to-day life now because your Blue Peter audition. What is that process like? Because you had to do some kind of ridiculous stunts or situations before you actually got offered the job. Yeah, well, Blue Peter isn't the sort of job that you can sort of search for on the internet. It's not one of those. So in my last job as a producer and then presenter of of online video content, I 
created a series that was actually quite blue peter where basically a random bloke random average bloke tries their hand at very out there unaverage whatever the opposite of average uh, is really random jobs so i i did a stand-up comedy gig i trained with the royal marines i tried a bit of stunt drive i did all sorts a bit of stunt driving and i took those clips put them in a show reel and the bbc came knocking and said would you like to come and do a screen test there isn't one specific screen test i guess it depends on who's in charge of the show because my screen test was different from the from the guys who've come after me and joined since i have but my screen test was thorough <laughs> I had three. I had to do a load of uh, pieces to camera, but obviously being Blue Peter, they couldn't have just been pieces to camera. I had to be holding a snake. I can't remember what it, what snake it was. It was like about two metres long. And I not only had to hold a snake, I had to hold something called a tenrec, which is like an Austra- uh, Australian hedgehog, whilst delivering pieces to camera as well. Is it a scary hedgehog or is it a cute hedgehog? Not cute. No, the snake's the scary. I like snakes, but the snake was supposed to be the scary one. And the, um, the hedgehog was was very little and cute, but spiky. So I had to deliver that, you know, ask questions about these animals whilst being engaged with the audience. So there was that. There was other bits and bobs I can't really remember. Second screen test when I got the call back was to do uh, an external film with Lindsay, who was the co-presenter at the time. Uh, and it was basically an assault course. And then after that, it was to do exactly the same as my first screen test, but as live. So I couldn't stop, or if I stopped or if I made a mistake, I had to carry on and they wanted to see how you would roll with the punches and how you would react if you, if you did something wrong. And that involved, you know, a bit of a dance off to see if I, you know, took myself seriously. I don't, Jess, you know this. I do not take myself seriously at all. And also to eat some really weird random objects like <laughs> pickled herring and just a chili pepper and then some crickets and some dried bugs and that was my three screen tests that i had for the job and it all worked out okay it's not like your average kind of job interview that you go along to and hold a snake and eat some pickled herring and do an assault course no no and, and and i don't oh of course i forgot i had to do the classic blue peter make as well which was one of the most difficult bits i remember to prepare for that i literally covered my flat in post-it notes uh, about how to make uh, it was the year of the pig and I had to make this little confetti cannon that was looked like a little piggy and it was quite tense that was because that's a classic part of Blue Peter and I did not want to mess that up. So did you know what you had to make beforehand? You had just like a hundred little piggies in your apartment practicing? Yeah, I knew what I had to make beforehand and I made a hundred little piggy confetti, confetti cannons. As I say, it, it turned out okay. Turned out okay. And if the BBC comes a knock in, then you kind of know that you're... A big deal. Your words, not mine. But yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to argue with that. It's your podcast. Who am I to argue? But no, it's impressive. From going from, you know, the days of Aberystwyth, way back when, where we met, Richard, where you were at university, and then to here. So had you always had like an end plan of wanting to go into TV presenting and, you know, ultimately end up on Blue Peter? Because it's quite a jump going from radio and then you're on Joe Media to children's telly is quite different. I genuinely had no sort of ambition to be a television presenter because honestly that sort of it was so far what I thought so far beyond what I thought was possible I came out of university not having a clue what I wanted to do and I messed around for three years before deciding to actually attempt to get myself a job but yeah it was I think I realized that I was all right at presenting when I was at university because they needed someone to to present in inverted commas the weather uh, and like the news um, and it wasn't anything to do with the presenting they needed a volunteer to do that so that everyone could work around them you know the, the exam or 
the work was everyone around them. They just needed a puppet, basically. So I did that and I quite enjoyed it. And also, I am terrible at football, at singing and music and acting and all of that sort of stuff. Um, as much as I love all of those sorts of things, I'm atrocious at them. So I guess the next best thing is to sort of talk about them. So that's where that came from as well. But genuinely, I didn't, I can't, I'm not going to sit here and say, yeah, I always wanted to be a television presenter because growing up, I just thought it was so far beyond what I thought was possible for myself. So it's quite nice to be able to sit here and be able to say that now. And in fact, growing up, what I wanted to be was a stuntman because I'm just a clown and throw myself around. So you kind of have come full circle and do stunts now, do your own stunts. So technically, you achieved it. Pat on the back. That's a good point. I never thought of that before. But yeah, I would, I would say attempting to climb the old man of Hoy and sleeping 500 foot in the air uh, in Snowdon or whatever the correct Welsh word is for Snowdon. It always var, is it, in Welsh? Uh, but yeah, um, I, yeah, I guess I do sort of my own stunts now. Anyway, so good point. Never thought of that. Thank you. Yeah, you can have that one. Update your Twitter bio. You're welcome. There it is. So when you left uni, did you have like a plan or you just kind of went with whatever was going? Because you left ABBA, so you decided you wanted a bit more than the bright lights of Aberystwyth, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Aberystwyth, as much as I loved it, I did actually. The day that I graduated or the day that the day that I was about, the day before I left in graduation week, basically very, very near the end of my time at Aberystwyth, I did sprint around a few shops and say, here, take my CV. I love this place. Um, but they never got back in touch with me. And I obviously, I don't regret that. With all due respect, I love Aberystwyth, but I don't regret that now because my life would have been on a fairly different path. Um, but I I just sort of, again, rolled with the punches in terms of, I, I did the radio thing for about three years and I realised I wasn't getting anywhere with it because, you know, everyone wants to do presenting or broadcasting in one way or another you know there's only so many radio slots so i did that for three years at various radio stations diverse uh, diverse fm in luton was the first one and then eventually i ended up on west side radio in london and then i realized i wasn't really getting anywhere as fast as i'd want to so i just created my own web series for grime daily which is a which is a website and online publication whatever you want to call them uh, and it was all about getting rappers grime artists people in that sort of industry to play computer games against each other and that was it so me and um, a guy called mr midas shout out to him we co-created presented directed funded did everything to make this happen and then um i saw a job posting for joe.co.uk on twitter and i said look what i can do can i do it for you and there it was at the age of 27 i finally got my first job in you know broadcasting or digital content creation, whatever you want to call it. I finally got a job in the space that I wanted to be in. Yeah, that's amazing. And considering you said you didn't have a plan, you are obviously someone that rolls with what's going on and just sees where it happens, but also is kind of like determined to get somewhere. So have you always been like that? Or is it something that's just evolved since you're a bit older and you kind of knew you had to make something happen? I'd say, I, I wouldn't say I never had a plan and that sort of, I don't know, I'd, I'd, I'd be worried that implies that things sort of fell into my lap a little bit. It's not that, it was more that I didn't have a plan when I came out of university because I had no idea what I wanted to do, quote unquote, realistically. And I guess look at me now. But I left a job when I was 24 years old and I thought, wow, I'm 24. I need to sort my life out and I need to aim for something that I want to do because if I don't do it now, I know I'll regret it. So I 
started that journey when I was 24. And then when I started that journey, that's when I guess the hustle kicked in and the grind kicked in. And that's something that's always sort of been instilled in me. I'll tell you a few reasons why. One, the music I listen to, my favorite genre of music is rap and hip hop. And a lot of the content of that music is talking about going from nothing to something and all that kind of thing, which is all very aspirational and inspirational. And two, I remember watching a film with my dad called The Pursuit of Happiness. And I don't know if you've seen it, the Will Smith film, it's a true story. And I remember watching it and I remember like, sort of putting my hoodie on because I was sat with my dad and it's a film about a father and son who end up homeless. And I remember shedding a little tear and being like, right, this film is incredible and this is the most inspirational thing I've ever seen. So Will Smith, if you're listening, thank you because that was a big change as well uh, and a big sort of motivator for me is the life of Chris Gardner, who was the character, that the, the person actually, the real life person that he portrayed. So yeah, I've, I've always had that sort of hustle if you like in me to to push myself and i've still got it in me now i still you know push myself constantly to do more and more um yeah will smith does listen to this podcast so he will hear it Going on to obviously your situation now, you're on Blue Peter and it is one of the most sought after gigs in the UK. You know, it's definitely legendary status. So you've spoken before about feeling that imposter syndrome and you were kind of quite new to TV when you landed that job, right? So what was that like stepping on to the set for the first time and thinking like, shit, this is really happening? Yeah, that yeah. So I'll start by saying that I have no right to be where I am in terms of I don't know anyone in television. I've, I've never known anyone in television. My, my dad is an immigrant from Algeria who is a plumber and a handyman. My mum works in like administration so it's not as if, you know, I have anyone, any family, friends or anything like that at work where I, you know, in the industry that I wanted to work into. My mum's side of the family are all farmers as well. So um, it didn't exactly, you know, there's no sort of silver spoon or anything like that. But then when it did, when I did get awarded the job, it was sort of an out-of-body experience. And I'm very, 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 very lucky that Lindsay, who, as I said, was the co-presenter when I first started, it was just the two of us. She was incredible. She was amazing. She she guided me every single step of the way. She took me by the hand and was like, right, this is what's going to go on. You know, we went for beers outside the studio, which helped me get to know her better and, and made that on-screen rapport a lot, lot better. But the imposter syndrome was, it was me feeling like, you know, I was undeserving of, of where I was just because, as I said, like, I didn't think it would be possible. I've, I've beat that out of myself now and I've sort of proven to myself that I am I am good at my job and I do deserve to be where I'm at. Um, but at the, at the start, it was, it was, I, I'll give you an example. When I got the script at the start, I would learn it, the script, word for word, verbatim, to try and get it right. Because there's no auto cue and it's live television, no auto cue. So I would learn the script word for word for word to try and get it right, for it to be perfect. And I'll shoot myself in the foot because it's impossible to learn uh, a script for a 28 minute show word for word. And the whole idea was to relax and make it my own. So once I did start relaxing and making it my own and injecting a lot more of my personality into it instead of just copying those words, then I got a lot, lot better at the job. But I had to beat that imposter syndrome out of myself to believe in myself, to make it my own, to then get better. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. It does make sense. How do you go about beating that imposter syndrome out? Because I think it's something that a lot of people 
deal with and even though they reach like ridiculous heights of success they still feel like maybe I shouldn't be here maybe this isn't something and I'm gonna like get caught out and someone's finally gonna say hey like we found you out and I think that's something that a lot of people deal with so being someone who's I'm sure overcome it I think we all have a little bit of it inside us right how did you go about that or was it just taken every day as it comes it was sort of taking every day as it comes and as I said the imposter syndrome was the thing that was holding me back at the beginning because I was trying to learn everything word for word. I wasn't helping myself. I wasn't helping the show. I wasn't helping Lindsay, Lindsay at all either. You know, if she went off script a little bit for the sake of, you know, on screen banter or whatever, then it would, I would feel like I was caught out because I was concentrating so much on delivering my lines. So I had no choice really, but to adapt how I thought about the job or what I thought about the job. And then I thought to myself at the end of the day, and this is what was said to me, you know, they hired me for what I brought to the table, the personality that I brought to the table, rather than my ability to memorize a script. So with that in mind, you can't really get much more fulfilling than having, you know, the the then editor say, in the end, it wasn't that difficult a position, uh, that difficult a decision rather, because you just brought something different to the table and you brought yourself to the table and blue peter is about being yourself as much as humanly possible because you do get put in all of these really weird and random situations and you are thrown into a situation where you're suddenly a role model obviously the editor at the time he he saw something in me that thought yeah he will bring something to the table and you know there's nothing that ticks the box more than that yeah, that was sort of all of the confidence boosts that i needed i guess to believe in myself rather than to think, ah, I'm going to get found out. Because also, to be fair, when it comes to Blue Peter, as I said, it's I can't think of another show on television that's A, live, but B, doesn't have an auto cue. If I was going to get found out, I would have been found out by now. Yeah, that is true. And it is that thing of like, just deciding, I guess, to remember why you're there in the first place, because we can get so caught up in our head and actually just like revisiting the fact that like you've been hired for a reason or you're there for a reason. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of times we kind of are too busy thinking ahead and not taking the time to like think back. And yeah. a lot of times just like pat ourselves on the back for like how far we've come. I know it does sound a bit corny, but like it's true because we're always like, sort of like punishing ourselves or thinking like right what's next what's next and actually like taking the time to just be and be like yeah you're a, you're doing okay oh exactly and like whenever I get bogged down if things aren't quite going according to you know if I miss out on a job or if I see other people doing you know amazing things and it happens to everyone you know you might look at someone and think fair play they've gotten that job I know I can do that job I wonder why I didn't get that job or something like that then I do if I get bogged down in anything like that then I think to myself okay 10 years ago, you were working in a bar. Eight years ago, you were just starting on your journey. You were at uh, Diverse FM in Luton. So it actually helps. And I, I have deleted Facebook now, but there's a part of me that wishes I did keep Facebook so that I could go back in time and look at those photos and take myself back to that time where I was working in a bar or I was handing out free samples of coffee or whatever I was doing to pay the bills whilst then trying to break into doing the job that I love. And it's it's about... It's about having those reference points and about seeing where you've come from, not necessarily always where you're going to. It's great to have targets. It's important to have targets, but it's also just as important, if not more important, to remember where you came from first. Definitely. And luckily for you, Richard, I uh, do have all your Facebook photos saved in my own personal album. So I'll send them over to you to uh, take a look at. 
<laughs> so you've touched on having to lean into that role, I guess, of being a role model. Do you feel the pressure around that? Because going from being on Joe, which is obviously like a young male uh, target audience where you can perhaps be a bit more sweary, a bit more yourself, I don't know. And then going on like children's TV, it is a big switch. And you are then looked at under that spotlight of parents watching it and if you do something wrong then they're going to complain because you're the role model for their child so what's that like i would compare it to um and i can't say the same for every single person on earth but i reckon 90 percent of people no matter where they are no matter who they no matter who where they are or who they're with they play some sort of role like jess 100 percent honest honestly are you the same with your mates as you are with say your family no, definitely not. Right. Are you the same with your mates as you are in the workplace, for example? No, probably not. Subconsciously put on some sort of role. That's not to say you're acting. It's just, you know, subconsciously you slightly alter your behaviour depending on the situation that you're in. And it's the same with Blue Peter. And it was it was the same at Joe to an extent. But as you said, you know, I was a presenter for a website that was aimed predominantly at a male audience between the ages of 16 and 40. So whereas Blue Peter is very much children you know up to the age of 13 ish um so it's just sort of like playing a playing a a role in a way i don't i don't consider it pressure i consider it a privilege big time and i think i put a post up on instagram recently where i was just wasn't having necessarily a bad day it was just i was just lethargic and unproductive and you know i just sending out emails and all this kind of it wasn't you know it's one of those days really but i bumped into I was, I was thinking I was waiting at the tram stop and a car pulled up with some kids in the back seat just screaming, Richie, Richie! And that really lifted my soul and put a huge, huge smile on my face. And I thought, yes, that's amazing. That's why I do this. That's one of the reasons why I do this. And one thing I also keep reminding myself as well is my audience now will be the best audience probably that I ever have because when I, when I go on to other things that are watched by people who have Twitter, they may not be as kind to me as kids are. And being a children's TV presenter, obviously, like, you kind of do have to take on that, like, very positive role. Is that something that you found helps you escape from, like, normal, everyday adulting life? Or is that something that you kind of, again, see as a character? Because you know what you say about actors, right? Like, they like playing a role. And obviously, you're not an actor. You are still you. But you have to be happy-go-lucky you. Is it something that, like, when you're at home on your own and you can just be that you miss it or you enjoy being someone else it's it's a it's a bit of a a complex one because not everyone has amazing days every day of the week and you could wake up and for no reason at all you could just wake up and and not be having a good day it just it, it happens to everyone but blue peter allows me that sort of escapism and if i do wake up and i'm not having a great day then and if i do take it i try not to take it into work with me but sometimes you just can't help it or something you know if stuff's going on in your personal life or whatever it happens then i do get that sense of escapism by donning this mask every thursday live 5 p.m and it, it is great it is helpful and i do love losing myself in live television so yeah as you say it is it is Oh, it's not quite being a character, but it does allow some sort of escapism. Talking about rhino poo for you know half an hour, or attempting to hold a tarantula, or whatever it may be, it's just great fun. 
So when are you ever fully 100% just Richie? Is it when, you know, with your friends, your family, or just by yourself? When am I fully 100% myself? I guess amongst, yeah, my friends, family, definitely. Just a different, I'm always myself. I'm just a different version of myself. I think everyone is. Yeah, like I, I, I am always myself. I'm just a different version of myself. It's not as if, you know, with my grandma, I'm Forrest Gump and with my dad, I'm Joker. It's not like that at all. I'm just a very different version of myself. Um, I guess, I guess the most myself, quote unquote myself I am, is when I'm, I don't know, it's a difficult one because I don't, I don't see it as more or less myself. I see it as just different versions of myself. Yeah, I don't think any, I think that's true. I don't think anyone is just one version. I'd say I'm probably the most myself when I'm just home alone, but then that's not like the real you because then you're sociable and then you're more loving and then whatever your work is, you know, your job that you go into, it's just, it's like you say, just different versions, I guess. And also I, I, I noticed, I've sort of noticed this a lot of my life and then Lindsay pointed it out to me that presenters have to adapt to whoever they a present with or b if they're interviewing someone or being interviewed they have to adapt to that person because at the end of the day when you're a presenter especially if you're interviewing someone it's not about you it's about the subject whether it be rhino poo or whether it be denzel washington both things have happened which weird thing to say but you you do have to adapt yourself to who you're with in the same way that as well, if I'm with my, I've got, you know, different sorts of, I've got different groups of mates. I've got my mates from university. I've got my mates from home. I've got my mates from, you know, work that I did on my way to being a blue Peter presenter. I am a slightly different version of myself in amongst them. And again, it's not, it's not overt. It's not conscious. It's subconscious. You know, if I'm amongst quieter friends, I'll speak a little bit more. Or if I'm among friends that, louder more brash more confident mates then i will either shrink myself or rise depending on the situation and that kind of thing so yeah it's there's a huge psychological aspect to what i do which i find absolutely enthralling um and again plays into that how much of myself am i myself always but it's it's not how much it's it's just different it is different and that leads me nicely on to a few name drops because I want to ask you who your favourite person you've ever interviewed is because you have interviewed some really random A-listers along the way. My favourite person that I've interviewed, uh, do I have to give you just one? You can give me as many as you want. Obviously, I'm not, unfortunately, included in this. Yeah, that Jessica Davis, she's good. Yeah. I was going to say, so... so Kevin Hart was one because we got on very well and we had a really a genuine good laugh together. And the fact that Kevin Hart said at the end, you're pretty damn funny, or that was pretty damn funny, was something that I'm going to get written on my gravestone. Pretty damn funny, Kevin Hart. Um, so that was really, really good. And it's what, it was one of those as well that could have gone, as with any interview, it could go one of two ways. Um, but it went really, really well. Uh, it was very, very funny. Um, and the other one because of who he's been in my life is Denzel Washington because he along with Tom Hanks and Clint Eastwood um are he's one of my favorite actors of all time so when I interviewed him I actually delayed my holiday for 24 hours or delayed my flight to my holiday for 24 hours much to my mates amusement but they understood and they were very good about it 
So I interviewed him and the parts of the interview ended up going viral, um, especially with regards to talking about Chadwick Boseman, who's sadly since passed away. And he said that the last time he cried watching a film at that point was watching Black Panther and about how, you know, the next crop of young, brilliant black talent coming through, he sort of passed on the baton and they took the baton and carried on running. He said, that's the last time he cried watching a film. And that quote got picked up by quite a few outlets. Um, and also because that interview didn't start that well, because I was very, very nervous. And I always try and approach my interview slightly differently, asking the same question, but posed in a slightly different way. And my first opening question didn't go down terrifically well. What was it? So basically wanted to say, because it was him and Antoine Fuqua who directed uh, Training Day, which he won the Oscar for Best Actor for. Uh, but on this occasion, it was for The Equalizer too. So I asked Antoine, uh, how much of Denzel Washington's uh, Oscar would you like to claim as being a director of the film? And um, Denzel, first naming him, which is really embarrassing, uh, if you watch the interview, you sort of see pulls a bit of a screw face and then he tried, sort of started trying to challenge me on a couple of other things as well because I was so nervous and because I do idolise Denzel Washington. I was like, oh, no, this is not going as well as I want. But I managed to pull it back. And in the end, he it was one of those very rare occasions where he got he got into the conversation and he was actually, I don't want to say engrossed, maybe not engrossed, but he was giving me a lot more than he needed to, if that makes sense. For example, I asked him of an example of the first time he acted and he gave me like two elongated stories instead of just one. And, you know, he interacted me and said, no, I've got a second one. Here you go. And I thought that was a really, really good sign. And in fact, his manager afterwards came up to me, his manager or agent uh, came up to me afterwards and and said that was a really, really, really good interview. Uh, He really enjoyed it. So I was happy with that. Amazing. And how do you even prepare for that? You're going in, you're going to meet your idol. You've kind of thought of this risque opening question then it's kind of i don't want to say bombed but you know hasn't like you said Mm. it hasn't reached him the way you wanted what's your thoughts then and what's your thoughts just sitting down opposite someone that is your idol because not many people get to experience that yeah so i i again without wanting to name drop i've been i've been fortunate enough to sit down in front of some incredible people some of them more than once but 90% of the work that you do is in the preparation. And so I will sit, I'll watch interviews that they do um, in other situations, whether it's, these were press junkets, which um, press junkets are basically very intimidating, intimate sort of uh, very strict interviews where you've got four minutes or you've got eight minutes or you've got you know how much time you, you can negotiate, but it's literally on a stopwatch. And it's a room surrounded by people, room, spotlight in the middle, you're sat opposite whoever, uh, there's loads of people around the outside watching you interview this person. So a press junket is a very different environment to, say, a talk show like Graham Norton, where it's a lot more sort of relaxed and it's a lot more conversational um, and they get a lot longer. And it's So I prepare by watching all sorts of different interviews to see what sort of interview, what sort of interviewee, what sort of interviewee they are. So Paul Rudd, for example, is a very different sort of interviewee is that the right word, interviewee? Yeah. I think so. Paul Rudd is a very, very different person to interview compared to Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix, I'd say, is a, probably a more challenging interview. Um, but at the end of the day, I also realised that when I was interviewing all of these Hollywood actors, they don't do the job that they do to sit in a room and talk to me. They do the job that they do to act and to make films. 
So sitting in a room and talking to me is the worst part of their job. They have to do it to promote the film, not because they want to. Whereas it was the best part of my job. And I always had that in mind as well. And also because I'm aware that they're sat in a hotel room for eight hours in a day, answering the same questions over and over and over again, I wanted to stick out a little bit more as well. And also I would always go in to the interview armed with some sort of anecdote about them, a film that they've been in, just something to break the ice because that first impression is key as well as to how the interview will go. So with Denzel Washington and Antoine Fuqua, um, because Training Day is one of my favourite films, I said that I bought that film from a mate's older brother when I was about 13 years old. And the only reason I got it, got it because it was an 18-rated film, the only reason I was able to get it was because my mate's older brother worked in WH Smith's and he sold me it sort of on the sly. Uh, so I said that to them and they were like, oh, okay, cool. So you've got to tailor your preparation to who you're interviewing. Yeah, preparation is key, isn't it? Because I've sat down with some people before and obviously on no uh, kind of level to Denzel Washington. But some people have chatted to me, for example, about the documentary I did for BBC Three. And it's like obvious they haven't watched it. And I'm just like, oh, like it does make you cringe a bit. So I can imagine like sitting down with literally A-list celebs who are giving you their time and you haven't prepared is just a recipe for disaster yeah and also how the hell am i going to strike up a conversation with ryan gosling or samuel l jackson you know we our worlds are so far apart at that point i lived in a two-bedroom flat in luton and he lives in wherever the hell he lives like our worlds are so far apart from each other it's unbelievable so you know you've got to try and get on their level or you know either raise yourself to their level or get them down to your level to be able to have a normal conversation because the best interviews our conversations as opposed to interrogations. Mm, good tips. I'm going to be like noting these all down, going into the BBC saying I've had my own little uh, there you go. tips from the BBC presenter. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll take uh, I'll take commissions. How did you prepare for this interview? Well, I'll tell you exactly how I prepared for this interview. Obviously, I have known you for years, but I did mm. have a little Google because I thought, right, maybe I should come in with some hashtag facts about you and I have to say it was really funny because I just typed in like your name and the google like showing the google searching that people have been looking for it was like Richie Driss net worth is Richie Driss married Richie Driss parents and then Richie Driss gunge and I was like right these are the four things that people like to see is there like a video a specific one video of you being gunged or like multiple and this is people's kinks they just like tuning in to see you get gunged do you know what potentially yeah however uh I'm 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 lucky in that <laughs> I'm lucky in that I'm a bloke and I don't as you well know yourself I don't get as many weird dms as I'm sure I'm, I know you get and like my co-presenters who are female as well, there's this running joke um, at the at CBBC about um, seeing presenters get gunged in jeans specifically. Oh, and there's yeah, there's um, there's like Lindsay's told me about this. Like oh, every single time she's got gunged, she's then received a DM about the fact what she, whether she was wearing jeans or not, which is really weird. Don't do that. Don't don't. That's just weird and creepy. Um, but yeah, I guess guns may be a thing, depending on yourself. Not you, not you. Me personally. Personally, um, I'm going to set up my own Richie Dress fan account for every time you're gunged, and um, maybe an OnlyFans. You know, just steal your content and try and make some money. Also, you'll only have 
two two videos there's two oh. videos of me being gunged well i'm going to start writing into the bbc and requesting it and saying Demanding. please can you start gunging richie moore but if you do that you know what will happen what i'll set the bbc security team on you and you'll have like a SWAT <laughs> team raiding your flat uh with bbc written all over them saying what are you doing who are you well, I've got my little BBC pass now, so... Oh, that's true. Yes. Yeah. So they'll be like, oh, she true. must just be working with him. It's fine. We'll, give her, we'll yeah. give her a little slide. But that is obviously something that people are looking up for you, which I did find was quite funny. Oh, and also, how tall is Richie Driss? Is that something you get often? I do. I, I think every single week I go into the studio and someone says, I forgot how tall you are, or hey, how tall are you? Or just to make it makes a reference to my height. I don't think I'm not Peter Crouch. You know, I'm I'm six foot three. I wouldn't say that's weirdly. T- in fact, I'm- are you? You know what? You're more tall. Me, me and my friends have a saying like, "Is it tall presenting?" I'd say you you do seem taller than six three because some people on their Tinder accounts say they're six three, and they're like five eight. So I would I would have thought you're like a six. You are not five? not six five. I'm not, I'm absolutely not six five. No. When was the last time you measured yourself? So maybe. Well, got- I mean, I sort of. I think I'd stopped growing when I was 18. Blokes usually stop growing when they're 18, right? Well, that could be a myth. So There you go. I'll get the tape measure out on my own in my flat and I'll try to <laughs> measure myself, even though that's pretty much impossible to do on your own. Maybe stand next to like a door frame and then that'll be a bit easier. Do you know what? The reason that I live in the flat that I live in is because the door frames are very unusually tall. And every single time I walk through any door, I sort of subconsciously duck my head. But these door frames are... Look how tall that door frame is. Lovely and tall, yeah. What what a beautiful door frame. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> now, Richie, this podcast is all about being underestimated. Can you think of a specific time in your life where you felt that you've been underestimated, that someone perhaps thought that you weren't worthy or weren't good enough, or maybe even that you underestimated yourself? I definitely underestimated myself when I first started working on, on Blue Peter. That um, imposter syndrome, as I say, it kicked in differently. Um... But I've also, uh, I also feel like I, I get, I feel like I'm underestimated quite a lot. And I don't know if this, this might be a very sort of personal thing in terms of, you know, what I think isn't the case at all. But in the industry that I'm in, the, the easily the most frustrating thing about the industry that I'm in is that your social media number equates to the value that you are worth. So someone who's got half a million followers you know, is of is is better at the job, for example, than someone who's got hardly any followers. And that is just not true at all. I've seen so many presenters, and I'm not even talking about myself here, I've seen so many presenters miss out on jobs that they should be doing because they haven't got the social media numbers of someone else who may have got those social media numbers through, you know, they may not have wanted to, they may, they may not have set out to be a presenter. They may have gotten into presenting because, you know, they were on Made in Chelsea or something like that and thought, oh, let me try something a little bit different. But that is a great example of people, not just myself, but people being consistently uh, underestimated because um, a metric of quality in broadcasting is your social media following when it should not be. Yeah, it's a weird time that we're actually living in. That That is something yeah. that is taken into account like... Well, it's a currency, right? Social media following and now is a yeah. currency and it shouldn't be because, like you say, it doesn't equate to your worth. So on a personal level, is that something that's mm. frustrated you? Do you feel like that's something that's held you back? Um, I wouldn't say it's held me back as such. I don't know 
of a time. I can't say for sure of a time that I was promised to this gig and I missed out because someone from, I don't know, a reality TV show or whatever got it instead of me. I can't think of that. So I, I wouldn't want to say that for sure. But I do notice a lot of gigs going to people, a lot of gigs and a lot of jobs going to people that I know I could do, but they have got a huge social media following and they have never presented anything in their life or they've never presented live TV in their life, but they're given this huge slot, this, you know, primetime television slot or whatever. And I think to myself, that's, you know, just because they've got half a million, oh, no, a million followers or whatever, it doesn't add up to me. It doesn't add up that their million followers are from, say, a, their time on, name a reality TV show, please. Uh, the Only Way is Essex. Right, so they're... That shows my age. That's such a, like, millennial one to say. Yeah. <laughs> their million followers is, are because they were on The Only Way is Essex. Yeah. How, why does that mean that they can present live television on a Saturday night? It doesn't. It's completely different. So that is a frustration, but it's a fact of life and it's something that I need to get used to. Uh, it is what it is. Um, and, and the only way to uh, get past or through that is by, you know, making sure that the work that I do is as good as it could possibly be. And if I concentrate on that, then hopefully the social media following will come to me. But that that is, you know, that's hands down the most frustrating aspect of the industry that I'm in. Mm, yeah it's frustrating when like you said you've seen people get jobs and you think I could do that job and what I find like really frustrating about like even when I was like doing the modeling and stuff and now I'm kind of like tiptoeing into this world but it's like having to rely on other people so say there's like one commissioner and you think you've got this really great idea and you know you'd be great doing this presenting gig or whatever it may be but like your whole career or like that aspect of your job just relies on other people of course you could be as amazing as you are but it's kind of like just waiting for someone else to give you the go-ahead and that's like yeah a really difficult thing to try and deal with and accept I guess yeah and and one thing for sure which is directly linked to what you're saying uh one thing that I've definitely learned in my time in broadcasting media whatever you want to call it is that it's probably the most it's one of the most subjective industries out there so what you or I would think is a brilliant idea with legs and it could go on forever and ever and ever. The people that maybe matter or other people or whatever don't necessarily like it. You know, I, I could say the same about some of the stuff that I watch on TV. I may not necessarily like, but obviously there's a huge audience for it. Or, you know, I know the more I advance in my career, the more people come out of the woodwork and say, this guy is a dick. I do not like him at all. And I'll think, okay, but I'm just trying to be me. It's subjective. Everything's subjective. So that is a frustrating thing because at the end of the day, if if something is subjective, then there's no, I guess, logical argument to it. If we were, if we were scientists, if we were in a scientific field, then you you go on fact. When it comes to, you know, making television, you can't really go on fact. Yeah, that's true. Even though it's a fact that every single idea I come up with is. An amazing idea, obviously, but subjective to the individuals who matter, I guess. But yeah, so looking forward, obviously, you're doing this amazing job. You're succeeding. Uh, so what is like your bucket list? What's your dream? Because you've kind of touched on maybe at some point you'd look at kind of like wanting to move on from children's telly. Do you want to move to like primetime, different audience? What would that be? It's a, it's a very expansive 
broad question because I don't know how to answer that. I've been on Blue Peter now for two and a half years, coming up to three years. I, I love it, um, but I don't want to do it for the rest of my life. It's only natural. Where do I see myself? What do I see myself doing? Um, doing a bit more production, getting back into production. Uh, I am working on a few things at the moment that are top secret. Um, and no, you will not get them out of me, I'm afraid. Sorry. Give please. us an exclusive. No, it's fine. I can't. <laughs> I'm working on, uh, but I, as soon as, um, you know, as soon as those things are out and about, then we'll have to have another chat. We will. But yeah, I don't know. Is the, is the short answer. Uh, documentaries, I love exploring. So I think my favourite thing about Blue Peter, which I'd like to carry on, is that I learn on the job. It's children's TV, but I learn on the job. And I think the idea of learning alongside the audience is one that I do want to carry on. So if that's documentaries, amazing. I think what Louis Theroux Louis has done with his career is bafflingly brilliant. Um, he is extraordinary, but I've got loads of... I guess people that I look up to, you know, Greg James is very, very, very different to Louis Theroux. And yeah, I think he's brilliant. Yeah. I like waking up to uh, Greg James every morning, um, but not in that way, obviously. But if, if there was one program that you could front, what would it be? Is there something that you watch and you think, yeah, I'd love to do that. There's a few things that I watch and I say, I'd love to do that. It's a few things. It can be as ridiculous as possible. I'm not going to hold you to it. No, it no, no, that's fine. I do, there's an element of myself that I do keep to myself. I don't think I told any of my friends. In fact, I didn't tell any of my friends that, for example, I got a job interview at Blue Peter. Um, I just told them I got a job. Um, there's an element that I do keep to myself so that, you know, there's. I guess there's less to Oh, okay, so you're keeping it. And then manifesting it in the yeah, inside yeah. for it to happen. There's, cool. There's a couple of there's a couple of shows, you know, like you know, your Top Gears and your Soccer AMs that are incredible, incredible shows that I could see myself doing. I'll leave you with those. The rest we'll have to wait for, and I will silently hope and manifest for it to happen and keep it. Thank you. You're welcome. So, Richie, thank you so much for joining me. I have to ask you a question that I ask all of my guests before they go. Uh, do you think being underestimated has ultimately helped or hindered your success? Being underestimated has helped my success because I am the sort of person that uses the underestimation as a driving force. Um, and it has led me to some very, very, very satisfying moments in my life where I've been able to say, hmm, no, I've done this and I've done that. Um, and I've used the fuel of people who have underestimated me and put me down and all this kind of stuff. I've used it as fuel. Um, and I think that's a, if you can take that, if you can take any sort of any boundaries that are put around you and you can use those boundaries as fuel to break through them, then you are, you're on the right path, I would say. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me. And if my listeners do want to find you on social media and get your uh, followers up, where can they head to? Please do. I need them to be able to succeed at my career, apparently. <laughs> um, so as of a couple of days ago, I, I actually... You've had a name change. You've had a rebrand. No, 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 no. Oh. I downloaded TikTok. <gasps> TikTok. You're, aren't you a bit old to be on TikTok? I am far too old to be on TikTok. <laughs> No, I'm actually a TikTok fanatic. I can't say anything. I'm way too old to be on it and I love it. Right. I'm on it for hours. It hours. Needs must though. Needs must. I've, I've got to. Um, so I am, luckily, all of my social media is exactly the same. So please follow me at 
Richie Driss, one word. Perfect. And what about Blue Peter? You know, if they just want to venture over to CBBC. Yeah, CBBC, five o'clock every Thursday, we're live. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. I'm sure I'll Pleasure. chat with you again soon. Enjoy a drink with you again soon. Most definitely. And good luck. Thank you very much and yourself. Oh, thank you so much, Richie, for sitting down with me and sharing your inspiring journey to success. I think we could all do with a bit of rhino poo in our lives to escape the reality of hashtag adulting once in a while. If you want to hear more from Richie, then you can head on over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Davis, where from just £5 a month, you can get early access to episodes and extended episodes, plus even more content, including an extended episode of this podcast. There is definitely a feeling in the industry that you have to have made it by the time you're 25 or else you're kind of like old me. So on a really personal level, Richie's story of hitting the big time on the cusp of 30 is super inspiring to me. If you enjoyed this episode, then please remember to hit the subscribe button and leave a five-star review to help other people find us. Oh, and feed my ego, of course. <laughs> Until next time, don't let others underestimate you.